it's amazing sometimes when we get back together how far back some of us go. I think it was in 2001 or two. Dave, the sax man here, came with two of Maggie's brothers and I think a couple of other guys to Australia for uh, probably one of the wildest rides they've ever had. They landed one day, of course you're jet lagged till you're almost staggering. <clears throat> they sat up and played music till three o'clock in the morning. We loaded them on a bus and we took off on a three-day drive. Remember this? <laughs> it takes three days to get from Perth to the northern part of Western Australia. That's how big it is. I think you could fit three of Texas into Western Australia. But anyway, <clears throat> uh, we went up for an Aboriginal camp in the outback along a river that had crocodiles in it. And we were swimming in the river. <clears throat> You said not you. <laughs> As we're riding along for three days, the whole band's playing. We got this bus full of people. We're singing. It was just, we, we'd stop at a place and camp at night, and one guy didn't want to sleep out on the ground because he was afraid that the snakes or the spiders would get him, so he'd sleep on the bus. Yeah, but the, the next guy was stunning. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you've never seen a night sky like what we see out in the outback of Australia. Anyway, good times, good memories. All right, we're going to resume in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. There is much more to say about this, and we'll probably kind of run through the uh, end of this chapter at some point today, probably after lunch. By the way, I am going to uh, ask Fassel if he would come up the first class after lunch. I'd like him to give you a report. He and Kerry just came back from Pakistan. I think it's very important, the work that's going on over there, and I would like all of you to be praying for them. And so he's going to come up and give you a short report in the next session. So let's once again ask God's blessing on this time and pray that we'll have receptive hearts for what he has to give us. Heavenly Father, what can we do when we begin to see the magnitude and the wonder of the plan that you have for us? And sometimes, Father, it helps us to look at someone like Habakkuk who wrestles with the same questions and doubts and concerns that we have. It makes it possible for us to be able to look at it impersonally and be able to see how wonderful your ways are and maybe be able to see our own lives in a little bit better light. Help us to realize that living in this particular time, a time of tremendous historical significance, that we are going to have opportunities that we've never had before. We're here to be refined, to be purified, to be sharpened, so that when those opportunities come, we will not fail. So we ask that God the Holy Spirit would take up the sword of truth and pierce our souls and bring us closer to the ideal that you have set before us of the servant that we should be to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>
the just shall live by faith. As I said earlier, Habakkuk is going through a spiritual journey of the soul. He's going through some very dark and some difficult times. Uh, he has many questions. His questions don't all have answers. And all of us know what that experience is like. There are times in life when things just seem so good that we go our way through the day singing and rejoicing and just can't believe how wonderful it is. And the next thing you know, we might be plunged into a very dark, very painful, and a very tearful time. And all of these things are a part of God's refining process for us. We need to learn to give thanks in all things. What an amazing statement that the Apostle Paul tells us, rejoice evermore. And if we could lay hold of that, and if we could understand that in the end, it will all make sense. And it certainly would for Habakkuk. But the words that are printed here for us in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4 are so important. And their importance is seen in the fact that they lay the groundwork for three of the great New Testament epistles. Three letters that we need to be familiar with. Paul quotes Habakkuk 2.4 in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17. He's talking there about the ministry that God gave him. A ministry that I don't think any of us would have volunteered for. One where he was hated, persecuted, beaten, imprisoned, went through shipwrecks, hunger, exposure to the elements, all kinds of dangers. And as he rejoices in that ministry, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is a power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. And then he says, for therein, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. The just shall live by faith. And what we see there is that Paul has grasped a lot of the meaning that we find in the statement what it means to live. To live by faith is to make progress. So I said earlier, faith has a goal. Faith has a target. Faith looks at life as a spiritual journey to a destination. And that destination is not reached until we walk off this globe and pass through the veil between the visible and the invisible world and we enter into the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not only in Romans, but in the book of Galatians, Chapter 3 and verse 11, Paul quotes it to emphasize that we are to live by faith apart from the works of the law. We don't do what we do to buy favor with God. We don't do what we do to try to earn or deserve anything. We know that the gifts of God's grace are riches too great for any offering, any sacrifice any gift that we could give. And so we learn to live in that grace and to live by faith. And then Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 38, 
The author uses Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4 to challenge the Jewish believers in the first century who were under severe persecution, and under that persecution, they were tempted to go back into the temple. And of course, the author, and I take Paul to be the author of the book of Hebrews for too many reasons for me to outline here. There are certain things that are said in Habakkuk that only Paul ever said, but all of that aside, he was not able to explain to them as they were facing this hostility and this persecution, just how glorious the opportunity was for them. But he challenges them not to draw back into law-keeping, but to go on by faith in spiritual growth and service. And so these three quotes actually amplify Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4 in three ways. In Romans 1.17, he identifies who is the just. He links it to simple childlike faith in the gospel message. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 11, he highlights what it means to live real life, true life, rich life, abundant life, is a life under the ever-present and marvelous grace of God. And then in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 38, he really expounds on the little phrase, by faith, because it introduces the 11th chapter, what we call the faith chapter, or sometimes we refer to it as the hero of faith chapter, and he begins and introduces each character as he calls them back from the pages of Old Testament Scripture, as it were, onto the stage before the recipients of the letter, and says, by faith, Abraham. By faith, Isaac and Jacob. By faith, Joseph. By faith, Sarah. By faith, Joshua. And as he calls these characters to the forefront of their mind, he wants them to understand that the things that they accomplished and the lives that they led and the, the record of their lives that remains for us today was something that was accomplished because they live by faith. You might have never thought of this, but Paul built his entire theology on two Old Testament passages. The first one is Genesis 15 and verse 6, where we are told that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he quotes that, of course, again in Romans chapter 4 and verse 3 and in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 6. Here we have the doctrine of the imputation of righteousness to those who receive the gospel message by a simple childlike act of faith. The second, of course, the one that we've been emphasizing here, Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. Most of you are familiar with the fact that there are five Hebrew words for faith. If you've never heard these before, you might want to jot them down because as I've emphasized several times, faith is going somewhere. If we're actually living by faith, we're moving in a direction. We're on a spiritual journey, even as Habakkuk was on a spiritual journey. And these five Hebrew words illustrate for us stages along the line of that journey. The first is Amen, which is really the root that Habakkuk uses 
When he says the just shall live by faith, it's in a form that actually refers to steadfastness or faithfulness. It's the word that's used in Genesis 15 and verse 6, and it means to lean on for support. Amen is the beginning of our faith journey. In other words, we hear the gospel message and unable to stand on our own, we lean on the support of that wonderful word, faith. And we begin our journey with that staff in our hand that steadies us and stabilizes us as we go on our journey. But as we grow in the plan of God, we move to the second word, which is batak, B-A-T-A-C-H. And batak is a word that's used in Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 5. You might remember these are one of those uh, verses or sets of verses that almost become second nature to us. If we learn to trust in the Lord with all our heart and not lean on our own understanding in all our ways, acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. And this is our word, batak. And it's a word that refers to trust in the sense of casting your care on the Lord. Peter really encapsulates the idea or the meaning of the idea of trust in the word batak when he says in 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your care on Him, knowing that He cares for you. And he's almost quoting there Psalm 55 and verse 22. So as we go along our journey and we start out on shaky legs and in our immaturity and our lack of biblical knowledge and our lack of experience, we're daily as we move leaning on that staff. But as we grow and as our journey continues, Paul Bunyan captures this, of course, in the Pilgrim's Progress. Sooner or later, we're going to come into a place of battle. And as we come into that place of battle, we have to learn to take that problem, that difficulty, that adversity, affliction, whatever it is, it's like an enemy. You're on the uh, wrestling ground and you've got to grab that enemy and you've got to throw them on the ground and you have to cast your cares on the Lord. And then we move to the third stage and we have the word kasa, Q-A-S-A-H. Kasa is a word that means to take refuge. There are some battles we're not intended to fight. There are some battles that are too big for us. And the word kasa is a word picture. The Hebrews are very word picture oriented people. They even taught their children the Hebrew alphabet by linking each of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet to a visual idea. And so... Kasa has the idea of a rabbit fleeing from a fox and running into the cleft of the rock. How often David uses this figure in the Psalms. And when we see, as Habakkuk even mentioned earlier, that the Lord is his rock, that idea of the rock is always, this is the place of refuge. This is the sure foundation. This is where I can flee and no harm can find me. And so Kasa has that idea of running into a refuge from danger. And it's used in Psalm 57, verse 1, and Psalm 144, verse 2. 
sometimes we're wounded in the battles that are a part of the spiritual life. And that brings us to the fourth of our Hebrew words, which is yakal. Y-A-Q-A-L, yakal. Yakal is the word that is used in the verse that saved my life. When I was a 16-year-old kid in the middle of the Amazon jungle, living with a primitive tribe of Indians. And I had gone there with a missionary, and during the time that I was there, I came under tremendous demonic oppression. Remember that as a child of God, it is impossible for you to be possessed by a demon. It can't happen. You have the Spirit of God dwelling within you. But that doesn't mean that the evil forces of the enemy are going to leave you alone because demonic forces know that they can oppress you. And being isolated from friends and family and a long way from home and living in a society where the witch doctors did not want us in the village and therefore they were constantly exercising malevolent powers and forces against us. And believe me, those forces are very real. And they are very powerful. And I came under this tremendous oppression. And I couldn't explain it. I, I didn't have the, the growth, the maturity. I didn't have the teaching. I'd only been a believer for a year to explain what was going on. And so I fell back on what many people often fall back on. And that is, either I was never really saved or I must have lost my salvation. How could I feel this sense of helplessness and hopelessness and darkness? And it seemed that I was surrounded by the dark. And I remember walking out in the middle of the village. We're in just a few degrees away from the equator in the highlands of northern Brazil. And I remember reaching my hand out, trying to feel the light of the sun on my hand. And all I could feel was coldness. I tried to pray, and it was like my prayers just bounced off the roof of the thatched hut that we were living in. I tried to read my Bible, and I'd open it up, and it was like I couldn't even see the words. It was a terrible, terrible experience. And I figured I must have lost my salvation, which, by the way, can't happen. It's not probation. It's salvation. You don't do anything to get it. There's nothing you can do to lose it. Right? I didn't know any better, and so I decided I couldn't live with the horrible weight of shame and guilt and fear that I was feeling, and so I took my long bush knife, and I went out into the jungle, and I decided I was going to place it right under my sternum, and I was going to fall forward on it, and I was going to put an end to my life and my misery. I knelt down on the floor of the jungle there and I prayed one last time and I said, God, I don't know what's going on. I can't explain this. I don't know if I've lost my salvation or what. If you have anything to say to me, say it now because I'm going to end it. A verse popped into my mind. Somewhere during that one year that I had been a believer, I had heard a message, and in that message, Job chapter 13, verse 15, was expressed. I didn't try to memorize it. I didn't try to hold on to it. It just flashed into my mind as if God said, Here, you heard this before. This is what you need. And Job said, Though he slay me, 
yet I will serve him. Some translations say serve. The word is actually trust. Though he slay me, yet I will yakal in him. You know what the word picture for yakal is? It's when you're on a battlefield, and many of our warriors have experienced this, where you are severely wounded, and you very quickly tie the wound up, cut off the blood, and get back to your weapon and start fighting. Yakal. It's a field dressing. It's the tourniquet on the vein, the artery that's been exploded so that you tie it off and you go back to work on the battlefield. And the minute that verse hit my tormented mind in that Brazilian jungle, I said to myself, that's the answer. Even if I've lost my salvation, I know the gospel. I can share the gospel with others so they won't have to experience what I'm experiencing. And the moment I made that commitment, it was as if the darkness just went... It was like so many birds. So real, I can remember it to this day. It was... The darkness and the torment that I went through that brought me to the commitment that led me to be here in front of you today. God works in mysterious ways. What a lot of people don't know is that originally my plan was not to go to Brazil, it was to go to Africa. But had I gone to Africa, I would have just been going for an adventure and God shifted circumstances around. So I went to Brazil with missionaries so that I would get spiritual benefit from what I was doing. But the amazing thing is that 20 years later, I went to Africa. As a result of my commitment, when I got back home, I finished high school, went to Bible college. Through the experience of Bible college, God moved me into the teaching ministry. And then 20 years later, I finally ended up going to Africa. And I was in Ghana, and we went to a remote area in Ghana where there was a three-sided shed where a group of believers met. And as I stood up to teach them, I looked up and I saw a young man. Some of you have heard this story before, but he was standing like this with his Bible closed, and I could see written on the edge of the pages of his Bible, Job 13, 15. You know what it was like? It was like God said, you remember? Remember when you made that commitment? Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. And you wanted to come to Africa, and here you are, and now you're here serving the King of Kings. And I had the opportunity to open the Word and begin teaching people in Africa. And now I've been in, I don't know, 10 different African countries. I lose track. What an awesome privilege it is to serve the King of Kings. But we have to go through these stages. And we have to go through the difficulties. And what God wants us to understand from Habakkuk, as he wanted Habakkuk to get it, is your dark times don't escape his notice. He didn't somehow slip up and lose control of the world. We call them accidents, but there are no accidents in God's plan. Everything happens as he told Habakkuk at the appointed time. And his hand is on the tiller of history and he is guiding history to its certain end and the sure harbor of his eternal kingdom. The last word for 
faith in Hebrew is kava, Q-A-W-A-H, kava. This is the one that's used in Isaiah 40 and verse 31. They that wait on the Lord. We're not very good at waiting. We want to run ahead. Uh, we would like to get out there in front. We want to see what's going on. What's it going to be like? We spend very little time managing the time that we're given today, but we have a lot of thoughts and ideas about what we're going to do tomorrow. The only problem is when we get to tomorrow, we're going to be thinking about the next tomorrow and wasting our time instead of using our time wisely right now. All we have is this moment of time. The classes that we've had last night and this morning are gone. They're gone forever. Yeah, they'll go on because they're recorded and people will be hearing them, but for us, they're finished. And this is by the grace of God and the wonderful welcome of this wonderful local church, the 15th year that we've been able to come back. But all those times before are gone. They'll never come again. And therefore, we need to take great care and attention to the time that we're living now. So Isaiah 40, 31 is waiting, and this is enduring faith. The word picture of kavah is the taking of little threads. And you take the little threads and you weave the threads together. Now we're told in Ecclesiastes that a rope of three cords is not easily broken. And it's interesting because where that's found there in Ecclesiastes, he starts out talking about two. And he says, two are better than one. Because if they lay down at night and it's cold, they'll keep each other warm. Two are better than one because if there's an attack, two are going to be able to defeat the enemy more easily than one. And he goes through all these things about twos and twos and twos. And then all of a sudden he says, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. You're going, wait a minute. Where'd that third strand come from? Well, it's actually referring because he's dealing with the relationship that we can have with another believer or the relationship of a husband and a wife. And wherever there are believers and there are two gathered together, who else is there? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's the strand that holds everything together. So this is Kava. These are the words that actually chronicle the journey of our faith. And I want to just give you a few points on what it means to live by faith because the idea is so rich and so full. It took me nine points to, and I had to stop myself because I would have kept writing. I'd have had 50 or 60 points by now. Let me just give you five thoughts. If you have the back of your note paper or somewhere, you might want to jot these down. And the first thing is that we need to understand that faith must have a working object. Faith must have a working object. If you have faith in a pelican, your faith is weak. You know, you may do like the ancient people and you have your totem, your totem animal. By the way, I have mine, but I don't worship it. I just recognize it. Sometimes in our lives there are certain things that show up at certain times and it's like, oh my gosh, there it is again. For me it was owls. 
The witchcraft people use owls as a symbol of evil, but owls are really a symbol of great phenomenal wisdom. And one of the reasons they're wise, of course, is they just sit there silently and say nothing. You know the wise old owl that sat on the oak? And the more he saw, the less he spoke. The less he smoked, the more he heard. Why can't we be like that wise old bird? And just different times in my life, they show up and it's like, wow. But ancient people used to worship those things. That would be their, their totem. If the object of your faith can't do anything, your faith is weak. If the object of your faith is Almighty God, then you have a mighty faith indeed to the degree and the extent that you truly understand Him and trust Him. Nan and I know people all over the world who don't know a thimbleful as much Bible teaching as most of you have, but I will tell you their faith is phenomenally strong because they use it every day. They know little, but they trust much because they have to every day. Faith must have a working object. Secondly, faith is a humble response to the grace of God. It's a humble response to the grace of God. God's grace comes to us through the channel of His Word. What a marvelous privilege it is for us to sit in the comfort of this building surrounded by people we know and love having just had wonderful snacks and drinks and things that believers all over this world have never known. There are believers in this world that have never known just the comfort and luxury that we have right here. And yet it's very easy for us to take it for granted. Third, we are saved by grace, and we are to live by grace. We are saved by grace through faith, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 and verse 8. And he also tells us in Colossians 2, 6, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. How long did it take you to receive eternal life? that one moment of time. You heard the gospel. The word came in. You heard it through your ears. It entered into the ears of your heart and you went. <gasps> Anybody ever see a baby born that exhales? I was present at the delivery of all of my kids. Nan had the last four at home. I never saw one of them come into the world going, <laughs> but I saw every one of them come into the world and go, <gasps> that's how we come to life through faith in Christ. But it happens in a simple moment of time. You know what? After that moment's passed, it'll never come again. It'll never leave you. You'll always have the benefits of it. You'll always have that relationship with your Heavenly Father. You'll always have that eternal life which is going to go on and on and on and on forever. This life will soon be over. That life will never end. 
But it's still only a moment of time. As we responded to God's Word at that moment of time and changed our entire eternal future, <coughs> trying to save your ears, we need to live by that every day. This moment is a moment for faith. The next is a moment for faith. Today is to be lived by faith. Tomorrow should be lived by faith as well. I have to hurry up or I'm never going to get done here. Point four. Paul tells us that our faith must be focused on the invisible realm. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, We walk by faith, not by sight. We have an example fifth in Moses, Hebrews 11.27. We're told that Moses endured because he saw him who is invisible. Moses had not even heard of the coming of Jesus Christ. It didn't happen for 1,500 more years. You and I have the gospel message. We have the record. We say, why didn't they record more? Why didn't they tell us how tall he was? What color was his hair? Did he have blue eyes, brown eyes? What did he like to eat? Why didn't they tell us all that stuff? Because we don't need to know it. But think of poor Moses. All he had was that faint understanding that somewhere down the ages of time, the Savior is going to come and provide for us eternal life. It was enough for him to fix his eyes on the one he couldn't see and endure and endure and endure because he saw him who is invisible. Six. Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. It's the evidence of things not seen. And therefore, the very fact that hope burns in our soul is the proof to us. It's all the proof that we need that it's real and it's true and it's genuine. <clears throat> Satan will do everything he can to extinguish that spark in your soul. He'll rob you of a loved one. He'll strike you with a disease. He'll take you through a series of heartbreaking events. And God stands back and allows it. Why? Because the only way to prove His power... I mean, if, if you're the devil and you challenge God to a battle through history... How stupid do you have to be to think that you could step on the battleground on equal terms with God? See, you know what God said when Satan screamed out his defiance as he rebelled with a third of the angels and said, I am going to become like God. I'm going to unseat you from your throne. I'm going to take over. And God probably did, as we're told in Psalm chapter 2, when the nations say that they're going to unseat him and he laughs. He chuckles, and then he says, All right, Lucifer, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll fight you with both hands and both feet tied. Satan thinks that sounds like a pretty good deal. And didn't realize until he saw Christ hanging on the cross with his hands and his feet nailed that this is where he beats me. 
Can you imagine the scream that went up in the kingdom of hell as Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Satan, who thought he was getting rid of him by killing him, realizes by killing him, he actually consigned himself to the lake of fire forever and ever. What a great plan God has. And while that fire of faith burns in our souls, there's no way He can win. And we have to make a choice day by day and moment by moment. I'm going to believe in Him though I don't understand Him. I'm going to believe in Him though everything hurts. I'm going to believe in Him even if it seems that He's distant. I'm going to believe what the Word of God tells me no matter what. And the forces of Satan fall to the ground. Seven. We're told in Hebrews 11 and verse 6 that without faith it is impossible to please God. Every moment in our life that is lived without faith is a moment that burns up at the end of our life. It's not going to last. But the moments that we live by faith, those times are going to stay with us forever and ever. Point eight. I've used this illustration several times, but I have it here in the notes. Living by faith is like breathing. We inhale the truth of God's Word and we exhale it in faith toward whatever circumstances we're facing. It should come to the point where we are just as unconscious of the inhale and exhale of God's Word as we are of the inhale and the exhale of the oxygen that we breathe. It should become that natural because that's the realm in which we live. What does it mean to live by faith? Point nine, just look at the heroes of Hebrews chapter 11. Some of them won great victories. Some of them lost every battle. Some of them had their dead raised again. Some of them lost all their loved ones. Some of them were victorious and had the wonderful opportunity of demonstrating the victory of faith. Others seemed to be losers every day of their life and they demonstrated that you can beat us, you can bind us, you can persecute us, you can destroy us, but you'll never win. You say, oh, I like, I think I'll vote for the victorious side. Well, you don't get a vote. Your life's planned. Three weeks from now, we're going to be having a conference in Arizona, and the title of the conference or the theme of the conference is Victors or Victims. And I'm dedicating it to two of the greatest heroes that I know, Kurt and Sherry Johnson. Because Sherry Johnson has gone through years of battling cancer, and as she was in those years, I think 10 years or more, battling cancer. And then they get in a car wreck and her neck gets broken. Now she's a paraplegic. Kurt cares for her selflessly, sacrificially. You can see the weariness. He has to turn her over every couple of hours in the night. Never a full night of rest. 
for years and years none of the joys for her that you and I take for granted to simply sit down and eat a wonderful meal to even get a good night of rest anything like that day after day year after year and when I talk to them I'm ashamed of myself because they are always cheerful thankful grateful praising God saying things like we don't even deserve to have the privilege and the opportunity to live this life. And here we are mumbling and groaning because the waiter didn't get the right food on our ticket or the cook may have burned my steak so that it wasn't quite the way that I like and on and on and on with all of our complaints. They chose to be victors. That choice is before each and every one of us. Now I want to ask you a series of questions, and you don't need to write these down, but I think you'll get the point that I'm trying to make. What if God had explained everything He was about to do to Habakkuk through the invasion of the Babylonians? What if He had told him how Nebuchadnezzar, the terror of the world, the man that made nations shake, would one day send out a salvation tract throughout his entire realm. What if God had told him of the victories of Daniel and his three friends as they were taken captives by the Babylonians in Daniel chapter 1, Daniel chapter 3, Daniel chapter 6. You remember the fiery furnace. You remember Daniel in the lion's den. And God could have explained all that to Habakkuk. And he might have even said to Habakkuk, by the way, these people are going to go through their tests, their trials, their difficulties, their heartaches, and they're going to be living on this verse. That's the impact you're going to have, Habakkuk. No, God didn't tell him. Because if he had, he would have taken away the grounds for faith. What if God had told him that after the fall of Babylon, Cyrus, the king of Persia, would become the deliverer of the nation of Israel? The fact that the prophet Isaiah called Cyrus by name 150 years before he was born. Look it up in Isaiah 44, verses 24 through 45, verse 13. And most likely, I take it that Cyrus became a believer because God says to him in Isaiah 45 and verse 3, I am doing this that you may know that I, the Lord who called you by your name, am the God of Israel. Be quite a thing, wouldn't it, to have your name called out and recorded in Scripture 150 years before you were born? To know that your destiny was set? that your life was planned? What if God had told Habakkuk that people say in various ways, Darius or Darius, who apparently was appointed by Cyrus to rule over Babylonia, you can read about that in Daniel 9 and verse 1, that even Darius would become a believer and testify to the whole of his kingdom. Turn with me to the book of Daniel chapter 6. The book of Habakkuk is linked to the book of Daniel, the book of Ezekiel, and even the book of Revelation. 
Daniel chapter 6, verse 24, And the king gave the command. They brought those men who had accused Daniel. This is after they threw him in the lion's den. And they cast them into the den of lions, them and their children and their wives. And the lions overpowered them, broke all their bones in pieces before they even came to the bottom of the den. Then King Darius wrote to all people, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth. Sound familiar? Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. His dominion will endure to the end. He delivers and rescues and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on the earth who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. What if God had told Habakkuk all this and told him, the part that he was going to be playing and that the little book that he wrote from all of his complaints and all of his questions and all of his confusion would be a book that would stabilize the souls of great men and women down through the ages of history. But God didn't tell him because where would the need for faith have been? You know, as we move on from Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, we find that faithfulness is going to have an effect on us. The just shall live by faithfulness. That's the idea. And faithfulness will compel us to become watchmen and warriors in the world in which we live. Every one of us is called to the task. And so God gives Habakkuk a message and there are five woes in the rest of the chapter, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but I would encourage you to look at Isaiah chapter 5, where Isaiah, more than a hundred years earlier, had expressed the same idea, this same warning of woe to the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem. And then if you shoot forward in time to another 600 years, you have the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 23 speaking to the <clears throat> scribes and the Pharisees and warning them of the woes that are going to come on them. The word woe is used over a hundred times in the Bible. It always carries with it a sense of impending doom and destruction. And so Habakkuk becomes a witness, he becomes a watchman, and he becomes a spiritual warrior. In verse 5, as he goes on talking about Babylon, he says, Indeed, because he transgresses by wine, he is a proud man. Uh, the Babylonians, by the way, were known for their, how shall I put it, tremendous capacity for drunkenness. They had gatherings where they would just drink until everybody was just stone blind, throwing up all over the floor and all kinds of strange things going on. He is a proud man. He does not stay at home because he enlarges his desire as hell. He is like death and cannot be satisfied. He gathers himself against all nations. He heaps up for himself all people. Will not all these take up a proverb against him and a taunting riddle against him? 
In other words, the people that he's capturing, the people that he is overwhelming, are going to one day jeer at him. And did that not happen when the children of Israel came back after 70 years of captivity and became a nation once again? And then think of how 500 years later, the Lord Jesus Christ comes on the scene and warns them once again because of their unfaithfulness, they are going to be scattered to the four winds, only this time not for 70 years, for nearly 2,000 years. The Jews are scattered across the face of the earth, and yet you and I live in the generation when they have come back. And God is not finished with the nation of Israel. So the first woe, we see the hunter becoming the hunted. And then in the next woe, we start in verse 6. Will not all these take up a proverb and a taunting riddle saying, Woe to him who overcomes and increases what is not his. So now the woe is for plunder. To him who loads himself with many pledges. Will not your creditors rise up suddenly? Will they not awaken who oppress you and you will become their plunder? There's a little rule. And of course, if you uh, know anything about the Hindu religion, they call it karma. But there is a fundamental principle that is true. What goes around comes around. What you sow, you will reap. And the law of sowing and reaping cannot be escaped. And you know, some of us sow, we're like the guy that sows wild oats in his youth, and then as he gets old, he prays for a crop failure. But it doesn't happen. We will bear the consequences of decisions that we've made. And those consequences, like reaping, always come back to us in much greater number, always of the same kind, and much, much later. There are consequences. Any one of us who lives much longer will still be feeling consequences of decisions that we made many, many years ago. It's inescapable. Because this is a part of the cost of us bearing that image of God, the expression of which is the power of self-determination. You know, a lot of people study theology and they study the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, but there's something that people should also study, and that's the doctrine of the sovereignty of man. You'll never hear about that one. And yet it's exactly what is meant when God created Adam and Eve and He put them in the garden and He gave them what? Dominion. You know what dominion means? Sovereignty. God is saying, in essence, my realm is heaven. I have now created a material world into which I have put you, and I am making you a sovereign over this realm under me. And the decisions you make will either be decisions that will bring blessing or decisions that will result in pain, sorrow, and suffering. So woe to the plunderer. Then he begins in verse 9, the woe for extortion. Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. You give shameful counselor to, counsel to your house, cutting off many people, and you sin against God. 
your own soul. I mentioned earlier that our sins always do damage to the souls of others, but we oftentimes don't think how much damage we inflict on our own soul. Cutting off many people and you sin against your soul, for the stone shall cry out from the wall and the beam from the timbers will answer it. I've mentioned several times that Habakkuk is very strongly linked to the book of Daniel, the book of Ezekiel, but think about this particular statement. Not only does the statement about the proud include Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus and Darius, but here we have a simple statement that we would tend to overlook. The stone will cry from the wall, and you go, oh, well, that's just a figure of speech. Well, not really. It actually happened. And you'll remember in Daniel chapter 5, as they gathered together and Belshazzar took the instruments that had come from the temple and they were filling them with wine and drinking. I told you they loved to drink themselves blind and silly. And as they're toasting their gods and as they're drinking from the instruments of the temple, what happened? A hand, a figure came and began to write on the stone in the wall and the stone screamed out a judgment against Belshazzar. Many, many, Tekelu Farson, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting your kingdom will be taken from you tonight. And that's exactly what happened. Check it out in Daniel 5, 17 to 31. Well, we've got three more woes and we have no time. Woe is me, time is up. We're going to pick up the rest of the woes when we come back. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to be prepared tomorrow to wrap up the book of Habakkuk. So let's pray and enjoy the wonderful hospitality of this church. Father, thank you once again for your grace to us. Thank you for the blessing of your word, for the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, for hungry hearts and souls, for willing recipients of that truth, for lives that are being transformed, for heroes that are being forged in this very, very important time in which we're living. Help us, each one, to stay on the path, keep our eyes fixed on the goal, never lose heart, and always remember, your kingdom is a kingdom that reigns over the affairs of this world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.